Chapter 3 of The Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Haley Pereira. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter 3. In which Aunt Sally takes her departure and meets Frail. The loom shed was one of the log cabins connected with the main building by a roofed passage, which Thring had noticed the evening before as being an odd fashion of house architecture, giving the appearance of a small flock of cabins all nestling under the wings of the old building in the center. The shed was dark, having but one small window with glass panes near the loom, the other and larger opening being tightly closed by a wooden shutter. David slept late, and awoke at last to find himself thousands of miles away from his dreams in this unique room, all in the deepest shadow, except for the one warm bar of sunlight which fell across his face. He drowsed off again, and his mind began piecing together fragments and scenes from the previous day and evening, and immediately he was surrounded by mystery, moonlit, fairy-like, and white, a little crooked being at his side looking up at him like some gnome creature of the hills, revealed as a part of the enchantment. Then slowly resolving and melting away after the manner of dreams, the wide spaces of the mystery drew closer and warmer, and a great center of blazing logs threw grotesque dancing lights among them, and an old face peered out with bright, keen eyes, now seen, now lost in the fitful shadows, now pale and appealing, or cautiously withdrawn, but always watching, watching while the little crooked being came and watched also. Then, between him and the blazing light, came a dark figure silhouetted blackly against it, moving, stooping, rising, going and coming, a sweet girl's head with heavily coiled hair through which the firelight played with flashes of its own color, and a delicate profile cut in pure, clean lines melting into throat and gently rounded breast. Like a spirit, now here, now gone, again near and bending over him, a ministering spirit bringing him food, until gradually this half-wake dreaming reminiscence concentrated upon her, and again he saw her standing, holding the candle high and looking up at him, a wondering, questioning spirit, then drooping wearily into the chair by the uncleared table, and again waiting with almost a smile on her parted lips as he said, Good night. Good night? Ah, yes. It was morning. Again he heard the continuous rushing noise to which he had listened in the white mystery that had soothed him to slumber the night before, rising and falling, never ceasing. He roused himself with sudden energy and bounded from his couch. He would go out and investigate. His sleep had been sound, and he felt a rejuvenation he had not experienced in many months. When he threw open the shutter of the large, unglazed window space and looked out on his strange surroundings, he found himself in a new world, sparkling, fresh, clear, shining with sunlight and glistening with wetness, as though the whole earth had been newly washed and varnished. The sunshine streamed in and warmed him, and the air, filled with wine-like fragrance, stirred his blood and set his pulses leaping. He had been too exhausted the previous evening to do more than fall into the bed which had been provided him and sleep his long, uninterrupted sleep. Now he saw why they had called this part of the house the loom shed, for between the two windows stood a cloth loom left just as it had been used, the warp like a tightly stretched veil of white threads and the web of cloth begun. In one corner were a few bundles of cotton, 
one of which had been torn open and the contents placed in a thick layer over the long bench on which he had slept and covered with a blue and white homespun counterpane. The head had been built high with it and sheets spread over all. He noticed the blankets which had covered him and saw that they were evidently of home manufacture and that the white spread which covered them was also, of course, clean homespun, ornamented in squares with rude, primitive needlework. He marveled at the industry here represented. As for his toilet, the preparation had been most simple. A shelf placed on pegs driven between the logs supported a piece of looking glass. A splint chair set against the wall served as washstand and towel rack. The homespun cotton towels neatly folded and hung over the back. A wooden pail at one side was filled with clear water, over which hung a dipper of gourd. A white porcelain basin was placed on the chair, over which a clean towel had been spread. And to complete all, a square cut from the end of a bar of yellow soap lay beside the basin. David smiled as he bent himself to the refreshing task of bathing in water so cold as to be really icy. Indeed, ice had formed over the still pools without during the night, although now fast disappearing under the glowing morning sun. Above his head, laid upon crossbeams, were bundles of wool uncarded, and carding boards hung from nails in the logs. In one corner was a rudely constructed reel, and from the loom dangled the idle shuttle filled with fine blue yarn of wool. Thring thought of the worn old hands which had so often thrown it, and thinking of them, he hastened to his toilet that he might go in and do what he could to help the patient. It was small enough return for the kindness shown him. He feared to offer money for his lodgment, at least until he could find a way. At last, full of new vigor and very hungry, he issued from his sleeping room, sadly in need of a shave, but biding his time, satisfied if only breakfast might be forthcoming. He had no need to knock, for the house door stood open, flooding the place with sunlight and frosty air. The huge pile of logs was blazing on the hearth as if it had never ceased since the night before, and the flames leaped hot and red up the great chimney. Old Sally no longer presided at the cookery. With a large cup of black coffee before her, she now sat at the table eating cornbread and bacon. A drooping black sunbonnet on her head covered her unkempt, grisly hair, and a cob pipe and bag of tobacco lay at her hand. She was ready for departure. Cassandra had returned, and her gratuitous neighborly offices were at an end. The girl was stooping before the fire, arranging a cake of cornbread to cook in the ashes. A crane swung over the flames on which a fat iron kettle was hung, and the large coffee pot stood on the hearth. The odor of breakfast was savory and appetizing. As David's tall form cast a shadow across the sunlit space on the floor, the old mother's voice called to him from the corner. Come right in, doctor. Take a cheer and set. Your breakfast is ready, I reckon. How have you slept, sir? The girl at the fire rose and greeted him, but he missed the boy. Where's the little chap? he asked. Cassandra sun him out to wash up. First thing she do when she gets home is to begin on hoil and wash him up. He do get dirty, poor little son, said the girl. It's like I have to torment him some. Will you have breakfast now, sir? Just take your chair to the table and I'll fetch it directly. Won't I, though? What air you have up here? It makes me hungry merely to breathe. Is it this way all the time? It's this way a good deal, said Sally from under her sunbonnet. 
Oh, this, the days hit some colder, like to make water freeze right hard, but most days it's a heap warmer than this. That's so, said the invalid. I've seen it so warm a heap of winters that the trees gets fooled into thinking it's spring and blossoms all out, and then come along a late freezing spell and gets their fruit all killed. It's queer how they does do that away. We all hates it when the days come warm in February. Then you must have been glad to have snow yesterday. I was disappointed. I was running away from that sort of thing, you know. Thring's breakfast was served to him as had been his supper of the evening before, directly from the fire. As he ate, he looked out upon the usual litter of corn fodder scattered about near the house, and a few implements of the simplest character for cultivating the small pocket of rich soil below, but beyond this and surrounding it was a scene of the wildest beauty. Giant forest trees intertwined and almost overgrown by a tangle of wild grapevines hid the fall from sight, and behind them the mountain rose abruptly. A continuous stream of clearest water, icy cold, fell from high above into a long trough made of a hollow log. There, at the running water, stood little Hoyle, his coarse cotton towel hung on an azalea shrub, giving himself a thorough scrubbing. In a moment he came in panting, shivering and shining, and still wet about the hair and ears. "'Why, you're not half dry, son,' said his sister. She took the towel from him and gave his head a vigorous rubbing. Go and get warm, honey, and sister'll give you breakfast by the fire. She turned to David. Likely you take milk in your coffee. I never thought to ask you. She left the room and returned with a cup of new milk, warm and sweet. He was glad to get it, finding his black coffee sweetened only with molasses unpalatable. Don't you take milk in your coffee? How came you to think of it for me? I knew a lady at the hotel last summer. She said that up north most everybody does take milk or cream, one in their coffee. I never seed such. It's clear waste to my thinking. Cassandra smiled. That's because you never could abide milk. Mother thinks it's only fit to make butter and raise pigs on. Old Sally's horse, a thin, wiry beast, gray and speckled, stood saddled near the door, his bridle hanging from his neck, the bit dangling while he also made his repast. When he had finished his corn and she had finished her elaborate farewells at the bedside, and little Hoyle had with much effort succeeded in bridling her steed, she stepped quickly out and gained her seat on the high, narrow saddle with the ease of a young girl. Meager as a willow with, in her scant black cotton gown, perched on her bony gray beast, and only the bowl of her cob pipe projecting beyond the rim of her sunbonnet is indication that a face might be hidden in its depths, with a meal sack containing in either end sundry gifts, salt pork, chicken, cornbread, and meal, slung over the horse's back behind her, and with contentment in her heart, Aunt Sally rode slowly over the hills to rejoin her old man. Soon she left the main road and struck out into a steep, narrow trail, merely a mule track arched with hornbeam and dogwood and mulberry trees, and towered over by giant chestnuts and oaks and great white pines and deep green hemlocks. Through myriad leafless branches, the wind soughed pleasantly overhead, unfelt by her, so completely was she protected by the thickly growing laurel and rhododendron on either side of her path. The snow of the day before was gone, leaving only the glistening wetness of it on stones and fallen leaves and twigs underfoot, while in open spaces the sun beat warmly down upon her. The trail led by many steep scrambles and sharp descents more directly to her home than the road, which wound and turned so frequently as to more than double the distance. 
At intervals, it cut across the road or followed it a little way, only to diverge again. Here and there, other trails crossed it or branched from it, leading higher up the mountain or off into some gorge following the course of a stream, so that, except to one accustomed to its intricacies, the path might easily be lost. Old Sally paid no heed to her course, apparently leaving the choice of trails to her horse. She sat easily on the beast and smoked her pipe until it was quite out, when she stowed it away in the black cloth bag which dangled from her elbow by its strings. Spying a small sassafras shrub leaning toward her from the bank above her head, she gave it a vigorous pull as she passed and drew it, root and all, from its hold in the soil, beat it against the mossy bank, and swished it upon her skirt to remove the earth clinging to it. Then, breaking off a bit of the root, she chewed it while she thrust the rest in her bag and used the top for a switch with which to hasten the pace of her nag. The small stones, loosened when she tore the shrub from the bank, rattled down where the soil had been washed away, leaving the steep shelving rock side of the mountain bare, and she heard them leap the smooth space and fall softly on the moss among the ferns and lodged leaves below. There, crouched in the sun, lay a man with a black felt hat covering his face. The stones falling about him caused him to raise himself stealthily and peer upward. Descrying only the lone woman and the gray horse, he gave a low, peculiar cry, almost like that of an animal in distress. She drew rein sharply and listened. The cry was repeated a little louder. Come on up, Hayer Frail. It's only me. How come you there? He climbed rapidly up through the dense undergrowth and stood at her side, breathing quickly. For a moment, they waited thus, regarding each other, neither speaking. The boy, he seemed little more than a youth, looked up at her with a singularly innocent and appealing expression, but gradually, as he saw her impassive and unrelenting face, his own resumed a hard and sullen look, which made him appear years older. His forehead was damp and cold, and a lock of silken black hair, slightly curling over it, increased its whiteness. Dark, heavy rings were under his eyes, which gleamed blue as the sky between long, dark lashes. His arms dropped listlessly at his side, and he stood before her as before a dread judge, bareheaded and silent. He bore her look only for a minute, then dropped his eyes, and his hand clinched more tightly the rim of his old felt hat. When he ceased looking at her, her eyes softened. I low you must have something to say for yourself, she said. I reckon. The corners of his mouth drooped, and he did not look up. He made as if to speak further, but only swallowed and was silent. You reckon? Why, won't you say? There ain't nothing to say. He were mean, and, and, he's dead. I reckon he's dead. Yes, he's dead, and they done had the burying. Her voice was monotonous and plaintive. A pallor swept over his face, and he drew the back of his hand across his mouth. He knowed he had not to rile me like he done. I've been trying to make his hoss go home, but I can't. It just hangs round there. I done brung him down and left him in your shed, and I load perhaps Uncle Jerry'd take him over to his paw. Again he swallowed and turned his face away. The critter'd starve up yonder. Anyhow, I ain't hoss-stealin'. It will mourn a host twixt me and him. From the low, quiet tones of the two, no one would have dreamed that a tragedy lay beneath their words. Look at him, Frail. That weren't nothing twixt him and you. You were both on your full o' mean corn whiskey, and you were quarreling back casts. 
A faint red stole into the boy's cheeks, and the blue gleam of his eyes between the dark lashes narrowed to a mere line as he looked an instant in her face and then off up the trail. Hain't you seed nobody? he asked. You knows I ain't seed nobody to hurt you and's that I'd tell you. Look a here, son. You're hungerin'. Come home with me and I'll get you something to eat. If you don't, you'll go back and fill up on whiskey again, and there'll be the end of you. He walked on a few steps at her side, then stopped suddenly. I'll low I'd better bide where I be. You and I ain't been yawned to the fall, have you? I have. You done a heap more than you reckoned on. When Martha heard the killin', she just dropped where she stood. She were out doing work that you oughta been doin' for, and she ain't moved since. She like to a parish lyin' out there. Poor little Hoyle, he run all the way to our place. He were that scared, and large she were dead, and me and the old man went over, and there we found a lion in the yard, and the cow were lowin' to be milk, and the pig squealin' like hit war struck for hunger. It do make me clar plumb mad when I think how you've acted, just like your pa. If he'd never started that there still, you'd never been what you be now, a drinkin' your own whiskey at that. Come on home with me. I reckon I'm better here. Them out be there hunting me. I know you're hungerin'. I got something you can eat, but I load if you'd come. I'd get you and the old man a good chicken fry. She took from her store, slung over the nag, a piece of cornbread and a large chunk of salt pork, and gave them into his hand. Thar, eat. It's heartening. He was suffering, as she thought, and reached eagerly for the food. But before tasting it, he looked up again into her face, and the infantile appeal had returned to his eyes. Tell me more about small, he said. You eat, and I'll talk, she replied. He broke a large piece from the corn cake and crowded the rest into his pocket. Then he drew forth a huge clasp knife and cut a thick slice from the raw salt pork, and pulling a red cotton handkerchief from his belt, he wrapped it around the remainder and held it under his arm as he ate. She ain't able to move that hollering. She's that bad herded. Pa and I, we got her to bed, and I've been there ever since with all to do until Cass come. Likely she done broke her hip. Is Cass there now? Who comes she there? Again, the blood sought his cheeks. Paul rode down to the settlement and telegraphed it for her. Poor thing. You don't reckon what all you've done. I wish you'd have took after your ma. She were my own sister, and she were that good she must have went straight to glory when she died. Your pa, he liked to have died too that time, and when he married Marthy Merlin, I reckon he were cured of his ways. But it didn't last long. Marthy, she done well by him, and she done well by you, too. They ain't nothing again, Marthy. She bein' a good stepma to you. She have, and, and now see how you done her, and Cass given up her school and comin' home there to ten beasts and do your work like she were a man. Her family wasn't brought up that away, nor mine wasn't neither. Big fool Marthy were to marry your pa. It's that away with all the farewells. They been that quarrelin' and bad, making mean whiskey and drinkin' it raw. Killin' here and there, and now you go doin' the same, and my own nephew, too. Her face remained impassive, and her voice droned on monotonously, but two tears stole down her wrinkled cheeks. His face settled into its harder lines as she talked, but he made no reply, and she continued querulously. Why don't you pay heed to me long ago when I told you not to open that there still again? You are a heap too young to go that away. 
my own kin like to be hung for man-killing. When did Cass come? He interrupted sullenly. Last evening. I'll drop around there this evening or late night, I reckon. I have to get feed for my own host and tote it up or take him back one. All I fetched up last week, he done it. He turned to walk away, but stood with averted head as she began speaking again. Don't you do no such fool thing. You keep Clara there. Bring the host to me and I'll ride him home. What you want a beast on the mountain anyhow? It's only like to give you away what you're at. All you want is to get to see Cass, but it won't do you no good, leastways not now. You done so bad she won't look at you no more, I reckon. There's a man there, too, now. He started back, his hands clenched, his head lifted, and his whole air an animal-like ferocity. There now, look at you. Tain't you he's after. Tain't me I'm feared he's after. How come he there? He come with her last evening. A sound of horses' hoofs on the road far below arrested her. They both waited, listening intently. There they be. Get, she whispered. Cass told me if I met up with you to say it, she'd leave something for you to eat on the big rock behind the holly tree at the head of the fall. She leaned down to him and held him by the coat an instant. Son, leave whiskey alone. It's the only way you can do to get her. Yes, Aunt Sally, he murmured. His eyes thanked her with one look for the tone or the hope her words held out. Again the laugh, nearer this time, and again the wild look of haunting fear in his face. He dropped where he stood and slipped stealthily as a cat back to the place where he had lain, and crawling on his belly toward a heap of dead leaves caught by the brush and old fallen pine, he crept beneath them and lay still. His aunt did not stir. Patting her horse's neck, she sat and waited until the voices drew nearer, came close beneath her as the road wound, and passed on. Then she once more moved along toward her cabin. End of chapter 3